If you've got your Bibles in your hands or on your tablet, turn to John chapter uh, 3. John chapter 3, we're going to continue walking through this narrative. We're going to switch the scenery a little bit. We've been spending two weeks uh, talking about uh, Nicodemus coming at night to converse with Jesus, and now the scene is going to change outdoors. We're going to go from the night to the daytime outdoors by water where people are being baptized. And once again, in John's gospel, John the Baptist is going to reenter the narrative, and he is going to display a contrast between what it looks like to have not just full humility, not just a, a desire to try to project humility, but what it looks like to actually embody humility. And the peace that comes with being able to model humility because you're not required to compare and contrast with other people. We can be content with just being who God created us to be and being faithful in the ministry that God has given us. And for John the Baptist the, uh, in particular, What's beautiful about what he models is he is content when things are exploding and there are large crowds around them, him, and he is also content when the, when the numbers start to dwindle and things get smaller. Rather than running and saying what is wrong, he embraces that reality and those transitions in a way that I think is beautiful and speaks to me every time I read this narrative because of the way I get caught up in anxiety when, uh, whenever it looks like the path of success is moving backwards. So John creates this beautiful embodiment of what it looks like to be fully confident in who you are, who got, what God is calling you to do, regardless of what the outer numbers might look like. And he embodies this so beautifully that what's more important, as we're going to see about John, is why he was able to embody that posture of authentic humility. And my big idea this morning is this. Humility is not a discipline. It is a fruit of an accurate revelation of Jesus. Humility is not a discipline that we that we work toward. It is the fruit of of an accurate revelation of who Jesus is and keeping that at the center. And I think that that is actually what John the Baptist models uh, most of all, even though, as we know in his narrative, which again is so beautiful, I like that the Bible doesn't leave out the bad parts. We're going to celebrate this morning this articulation of John's revelation of Jesus, even though when he's in prison and in despair, he begins to question it. So even though we may go through times of doubt and despair where we question our convictions, that reality doesn't hinder the power of the fruit that's born when our convictions align with what is revealed through the person and ministry of Jesus. So we'll start here with a dispute that takes place. And this dispute is going to be about ritual purity. Somehow that dispute got around to discussing about what Jesus was doing. And there's jealousy, and there's envy, and there's frustration. And as is the custom with jealousy, envy, and frustration, um, they're, they're going to make an accusation about Jesus baptizing. But we're going to find out in chapter 4, Jesus actually didn't baptize anybody. His disciples did. But that probably made them even more frustrated. And so there's this conflict that happens, and they bring this conflict to John. John's response is to diffuse the envy and the jealousy, and to present a heart of true humility. So here we are in John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. We're going to look at uh, 22 through 30 first. 
After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside where he spent time with them and baptized. John was also baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized since John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John. Presumably, both his disciples and the Jew that had this dispute, they come to John. And told him, Rabbi, the one you testified about and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing. And everyone is going to him. Now, for the one with a revelation of Jesus, he can be at peace with that. For those whose identity is wrapped up in the ministry they're committed to, then there's only anxiety and frustration and fear. John's identity is rooted in a revelation of Christ. This is contracted with his disciples whose identity is is rooted in what they do. Therefore, if that gets threatened, they become threatened. But for John, because his identity is rooted not in what he does, but in who he is, and more in particular, who God has created him to be, he is at peace. So, so they come and they bring this dispute to him, particularly with the frustration and the fear that's coming from the fact that more people, more crowds are going to, uh, to be baptized by Jesus than are following John the Baptist. Verse 27, John responded, No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom, but the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. So this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Of course, those are, that's a very famous line, and it's a really powerful line. And so here we see John recognizes he is not the groom and he is overjoyed to occupy the place of the friend of the bridegroom. He has security and he's rested there. And this whole narrative then that begins with this uh, confrontation of envy and jealousy and rivalry ends with this powerful declaration, he must increase and I must decrease. Now, for a moment there, of course, my temptation was just to stop there and then give a TED Talk on how to operate in humility so that your ego decreases and Christ increases. And, and although I'm saying that a little tongue-in-cheek, I don't think that's a bad application. I, I think that that is a powerful truth. I mean, I, I think we would all do well to remind ourselves daily before we go out into the world that in truth our ego must decrease and Christ within must increase. I think that's a good and proper response. It's just that that response is not what's embedded in the context. John was not making an existential statement rooted in his powerful practice of meditation. John is making a statement that is full of theological insight that we need to respect and honor from the context of what he, uh, of the narrative context from which that statement comes. And so we have to remember that there's a deep significance in John saying this, in particular in this one aspect. 
John the Baptist is the last of the Old Covenant prophets. He's the last one. The last prophet that appears under the Old Covenant reality is John the Baptist. And he is raised up to be the forerunner that announces things are about to radically change. And that's why he's baptizing with water so that those whose hearts were, were far off could prepare themselves for the coming of the Messianic age, for the coming of the Messiah, because John had a revelation of who Jesus was. So when John, as the last Old Covenant prophet, says, he must increase, but I must decrease, he is saying something more than just a pithy, wise statement. John's ministry must give way to the one to whom his ministry pointed, just as the old covenant must give way to the new covenant to which it has pointed. So once again, as I've tried to highlight, the key tensions in the New Testament are believers trying to wrap their heads around what it means that the former is passing away and is obsolete, and behold, the new has come. And all of the implications that that means, well, John the Baptist becomes the narrative figure that is the hinge, because he is living in that reality of the old passing and the new coming, and he recognizes even this phenomenon of the crowds leaving him to go to Jesus is precisely what God had in mind that there was supposed to be a transition from the old covenant that was fulfilled in Christ into the waking up into this new covenant that is established in Christ. And that new covenant is what ought to define our understanding of faith and practice and even our spiritual identity. Now, again, I don't want to take away from the fact that John clearly is modeling this profound humility. John is also the model follower of Jesus. This is a life in which the cycle of death, resurrection, and being born anew results in an increased awareness of Christ and an increasing focus on Jesus as our hope, life, and power. John is very well aware of what's going on here. And so I think that even though we could stop and we could ponder what it means for uh, Christ to increase and for us to decrease, the power of this revelation is rooted in the very next section. And if you read it, you'll notice as it flows through that it's kind of confusing. And uh, we're in good company because I spent some time with really smart people who have more degrees than Fahrenheit behind their names read what they wrote about this passage, some of them alive and some of them are already dead. So I talked to the contemporary guys and I spoke with the ancient ones. And none of them can agree on where, how exactly we're supposed to place this next section. Because if you look at it, it reads as though John is just continuing his dialogue. Our Bibles might mark it as though John quits talking when he says he must increase and I must decrease. And so uh, there, there's a, there's a, school of scholarship that believes that what John the Apostle is now doing is he's writing commentary about this narrative. Maybe he is. However, if you read it, it reads just fine as though John's not inserting himself in all, but he's just, he is just recording what John the Baptist is saying about his revelation of Jesus. I don't 
think it makes or breaks your salvation either way. I am just saying that it is a little confusing. I probably lean toward this being an expression of John the Baptist's heart because it's in keeping with what we hear from him. In fact, if you just flip over a page or two to John chapter 1, verses 29 through 36, we're not going to read it, but what you'll see is John the Baptist saying these things about Christ. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me, even though John the Baptist was older and was born first. He also says, I've seen and testified that this is the Son of God. And finally, at the verse 36, he says, look, the Lamb of God. So, once again, John's humility is not rooted in his hard work of cultivating humility. Humility is the fruit of an accurate revelation of Jesus and the God that he represents. In other words, if you have the choice between getting the next best self-help book that teaches you how to cultivate a life of humility, or you can set aside some prayer and fasting and get before the Lord and ask God to expand your heart and your understanding of who Jesus is, you should pick option B, not option A. Because this is not born out of his self-improvement plan, his five-year strategic plan for increasing in virtue. No, this humility is a natural result when we see clearly who Jesus is and the God he embodies and represents. If we will fix our eyes there, there will be an effect within our soul that will produce authentic humility. So here is what either John the Baptist or the Apostle John has to say about Christ. Verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. There's our phrase again. Remember up in John 3, you got to be born from above? Well, now we're bringing this idea back in in application to Christ. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. So he's repeating this. Either John the Baptist or the Apostle John is repeating themselves themselves because there's something that we as the reader are supposed to catch in this narrative. Verse 32, he testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. Again, echoing John chapter 1, the prologue. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. He doesn't make God true. But the one who receives the testimony of Jesus is living in in an affirmation of what's already true. You know, it's like this phrase that we use, you have to accept Jesus as Lord. We have to remember whether we accept Jesus as Lord or not, Jesus is Lord. Our acceptance of it doesn't make it true. It just empowers us to be able to now live in the joyful benefits of what it means to understand that Jesus is Lord. And so and so if we accept what he says then we are affirming that what God says is true because this is my second big idea. All that's true about Jesus is true about God. All that is true about Jesus is true about God. 
We'll dive into this a little bit more in a few moments. But therefore, if you have some sort of scary, toxic vision of God that doesn't match what's been revealed in Jesus, please feel free to poke at that theology a little bit. That might be a bit of theological tobacco that you want to stop smoking. And you have permission to do that. So, so the one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. Verse 34. For the one whom God sent, this is a key critical right here. For the one whom God sent, speaking of Jesus, speaks God's words. Jesus didn't speak Jesus' words. When Jesus speaks, we are hearing the voice of God. For the one who God sent speaks God's words since he gives the Spirit without measure. The only Old Testament character that this is said about. If you go through the Old Testament, you'll hear about times in which the Spirit temporarily rests on folks so that they can execute the job that God has given them to do or the ministry that God has called them to pursue. Uh, But here, this is different. This is not just a temporary experience of the Spirit or what we might call anointing for ministry. This is talking about the fact that Jesus himself embodies and has all that the Spirit is. Since he gives the spirit without measure, verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. The one who believes in the son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. And you can look into that a little bit more from our sermon last week of why it is that we remain in darkness when we don't believe. And what it means that we believe is just evidence of the life within us. It doesn't qualify us for that life. It, it just enables us to walk in the joyful benefits of that reality. So look at what this verse says about Jesus in these, in these few phrases. It says more than once that he is above all. It says it twice. Jesus is above all. He speaks God's words. He has, because he's been given the spirit without measure. And then finally, to sum it all up, it says that he has been given all things. In fact, more specifically, the Father has given all things into his hands. So what we see is a magnificent, glorious revelation of who Jesus is. And the more clearly we see Jesus, the more clearly we see our creator, and the more faithfully we can live out the way of love that we are wired to flourish in. We do not flourish outside of the way of love. We are created in love, empowered by love, so that we can flourish by walking in the way of love. And so... This reminds us of a couple of other New Testament passages. One you may be thinking of, and I'm glad that you are, it's Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17. And this is a powerful Christological passage. And let, let's, just all, let, let, let's all just uh, learn a few words here so that we can sound smarter at lunch. Christological just means having to do with Christ. If I talk about your Christology, that means the branch of theology, theology is the knowledge of God, the branch of theology that deals with our understanding of who Jesus is falls under the category called Christology. 
Hopefully, if we're faithful, our Christology is informed by the scriptures that speak about Christ. And so we are very interested in the Christological passages so that we have a healthy Christology as part of our theology. There you go. You're welcome. You will sound very smart if you have, and you'll sound, you'll sound smarter if you have a pipe in your hands. Um, but the, these are two powerful and very important Christological passages. Get, getting this is more important than dropping whatever bad habit or sin that you think disqualifies you from being used of God. If you have to, put up, that, put, put up with that and put your energy in seeing Jesus. It is in seeing Jesus and responding to the God that he reveals that our lives are transformed, that we learn to keep in step with the Spirit, thus bear the fruit of the Spirit, thus become free of the works of the flesh. The focal point is not in getting free of the works of the flesh. It's learning how to keep in step with the Spirit and letting that good work take care of that. So Colossians 1, 15 and 17 says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. This is such a magnificent, powerful version of Christ because what we see is it's not just Christians that benefit from the presence of Christ. The entire world, regardless of sexual orientation, regardless of class, regardless of religious affiliation, they are all held together in Christ. All of creation benefits from the manifest presence of Christ. He is not just the commodity of those who follow the Christian religion. He is before all things. And here's the thing. All things were made for him, including the people we disagree with or dislike. They were all made for him. This is a magnificent vision of what it means to begin to see the Christ as he is and the God he has revealed. Second one is Hebrews 1.3, which I, I hope that by the time your, your journey here at Christ Community, you'll just be like in your sleep can, can rattle off this verse. It's one of the most important verses of the New Testament, and I know I tend to say that nearly every Sunday, but indulge me. Hebrews 1.3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word and making purification for sins. He set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Look at that Hebrews 1 verse 3, that first part of the verse. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and what? the exact expression of his nature. Jesus is the exact expression of Yahweh's nature. Jesus is the exact expression of our creator's nature. And the reason why this is important is because we've affirmed that Christ is godlike, but you can't stop there. 
Christ is God-like because God is Christ-like. Christ is God-like because God is Christ-like. We didn't always know this, but now we do. So act accordingly. Because what we, all, what we often struggle with is the God we really like when we look at Christ and a God that we're really afraid of when we look at what we've built because of our religious or church histories and the things we've picked up about God. Almost to where a lot of us live with, although we wouldn't say this, we live with almost like this bipolar view of God. That when he started out, he was just really cranky and petty and he'd blow people up for this and that. And, and he wanted his people just to kill everybody if they didn't comply. And, and, and he, would, he was really judgmental, filled with fury. And then finally, the scripture stopped being written and God saw a therapist, got on Prozac, and then shows back up 400 years later in Christ saying, hey, it's a new me, everybody. It's, you're safe now. No, we've always been safe. God has always been this way. and We've got to entertain the possibility that the Old Testament serves as a journey of people's misunderstanding and re-understanding of what God is like. And and because if you look at it, even the portrayals of God are morphing throughout the Old Testament narrative. By the time you get to the prophets, they're critiquing and criticizing what those who were the first generation under the law thought about God. They're even critiquing and criticizing some of their means of worship. And the prophets are going all out saying, yes, you think that these things that are written in the law, your feasts and your fast days, this is what makes you holy. And the prophets are coming along and says, thus says Yahweh, I hate those things. You you guys have got them all off course. Your heart's not right in it at all. You've missed the point. You make it about religious ritual when really it's about being a better human being and sharing with those without and taking care of the oppressed. The prophets... This is what I love about our religion. It's the only one that critiques itself. And so if you survey the Old Testament, you're going to find the ancient words of our faith critiquing itself. But what Hebrews is celebrating is that all of this crescendos in an absolute revelation and understanding who God is in the incarnation of Christ. Christ clears up all of our toxic misunderstandings about God if we will have ears to hear. Thank you, whoever did that. I agree with you. So we that's why our faith is centered on Christ. It's not a token to take away your existential dread of death. But that's how we promote our religion. That's not what this is. It is the embodiment of of divine love, the embodiment of Yahweh, that if we will listen and follow, we will be saved as we walk in the way of Christ, empowered by the Spirit of Christ. That's what we're after. Not just taking care of our exigential dread of what's going to happen on the other side of this life. So therefore, if that's true, then that means my images of God have to reflect the nature of Christ because Christ is the exact expression of the nature of God. Does that make sense? So then, if we're going to ask what God is like, the answer is look to Jesus. 
Well, what kind of portrayal do we get if we do that? So glad you're at, you asked. Let's take a quick little journey. So what kind of God is he? Well, in Luke 19, we read, but as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way of peace. But now it is too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. What kind of God is he? He's a God whose heart is broken over those who refuse the way of peace. Violence, war, retribution, domination, these are not expressive of the heart of God. Even though you can find Bible verses that will try to make you convince me that God is violent and, 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 and is preoccupied with retribution. I understand that those verses are out there. What I am saying is the scripture still has to submit to the authority of the word of God. And the word of God is true and infallible. And when he was 12 years old, it grew a beard. Because the word of God is Jesus Christ. And all our understandings of scripture and God must yield to the revealed word of God. And so we see that God is not one who promotes and takes sides in war. If you want to know whose side God is on in war, he is with the broken and the hurting and the dying on both sides of the equation. That's where you'll find God because that's where you would have found Jesus. That's the heart and nature of the God we are called to serve and reflect. Luke 13, 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. What kind of God is he? He is a God who longs to gather those unwilling to embrace him. What kind of God is he? He is a God who wants those who do not want him. See, I grew up with an attitude that once people rejected God, he was pretty much indifferent to them. That is not the God revealed in Jesus. He wants those who do not want him. And I'll take it a step further. He wants those that his church is often glad that they rejected and left. We may not want them, but Jesus does. John eight eleven. this is the final dialogue between Jesus and the woman who was caught in adultery. You remember that story? She's gathered around and then there's a test. Hey, she's supposed to be stoned. And then Jesus says that powerful phrase, well, he who is without sin can drop the first stone. Then he writes in the dirt and he looks up and everyone's gone except the woman. What time is it? There's a powerful picture there. The self justified religious do not want to remain in the presence of Jesus. But the guilty, the broken, the sinful, she is content to remain. And when he looks at her, he says, where are your accusers? Is there no one to condemn? And she responds, responds in verse 11, no one, Lord, she answered. 
Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. That, look at that. The ordering of that verse is so important. The message of religion is, sin no more and I won't condemn you. This is not the message of Jesus. Before there is repentance, before there is sin no more, he speaks the words, I do not condemn you. The removal of shame precedes the call to obedience. But in religion, the call to obedience is the price you pay to have your shame removed. And if you've labored under that system long enough and you're weary, you've earned your weariness. But luckily, there is one who says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest because you do not have to earn your freedom from shame from me. I'm just going to give it to you as a gift because he's the one who represents the heart of our creator. So what kind of God is he? He's the kind of God that says to guilty sinners, neither do I condemn you. What kind of God is he? He's the kind of God that removes our shame first and then empowers us to go and sin no more. That's the kind of God he is. Finally, Matthew 10, 9, 10 through 17. We're just, uh, that shouldn't say 17. I cut it off to at 13. While he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, when he heard this, him being Jesus, he said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. And then he says to the religious leaders, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, I desire a life of public grace, not private worship sacrifice. Private worship and sacrifice is easier than living a life of mercy. But it's not the heart of God this is where we can sometimes see our religion becomes the way we excuse actually not obeying what Jesus calls us to do. It's a, it's a really slick deal. I don't want to do the hard work of forgiveness and gentleness and love, but I'll be very religious, and that will justify my lack of manifesting the Spirit of Christ. I lived for decades that way. I actually learned to manage it quite well. Frankly, I was promoted for it. Pat's on the back. I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners. What kind of God is he when we look at Jesus? Well, he's the kind of God that welcomes sinners at his table. He's the kind of God who desires mercy rather than sacrifice. He's the kind of God who calls sinners to himself. He's the kind of God who wants the unwanted. 
He's the kind of God who loves, wants, and welcomes the people that some of those who practice the religion in his name actually reject. If you are still carrying a wound because of how a church treated you, it doesn't mean that they were representing the heart of God. And if what you felt from the so-called people of God was rejection, rest assured, God wants you. God accepts you. He will remove your shame and walk with you in a journey to go deep into the woundedness that gave birth to your sin. And he will make you whole. He will heal you in that deep spot that maybe you're not even aware of. When he does, that healing will result in the fruit of keeping step in the spirit and you will find you will no longer need to run to your sin. Getting free of sin is not about disciplining your behavior. Getting free from sin is about entrusting yourself to Jesus at such a deep existential level. He heals the root of sin. In fact, what we call sin is really just the fruit of sin. That's the behavior. That's what we spend all of our time trying to fix, trying to get away from, trying to read the books that'll help us stop those bad habits. That will never work. But if we let Jesus take the healing balm to our sin, that place of brokenness and ill health and woundedness, as he heals that, we get free of those behaviors that have plagued us. The Holy Spirit's way is more gracious, more restful, and much more effective. So, as we close, my encouragement to you is to read Jesus your faith. Now, you're clever, those who are clever will realize what I did was, what I didn't get to say last week because I ran out of time, I'll just rework it into the next week's sermon. So, kudos to you. How might you do this? Well, I am just sharing there are multiple ways. Here's the journey I'm on. First of all, go outside. Get outside. If we want to follow the metaphor, I mean, the, uh, the teaching of creation, whether we want to take that as a metaphor or we want to take it as a scientific fact, what we know is this. Creation was buzzing with the presence of God before we were even on the spot. And that creation itself is, the, is, is where God places humans when he makes them. Remember, it says Adam was formed from the earth and then God what? Placed him in the garden because nature is the canopy of God's grace. Nature is the only real sanctuary there is. I'm not saying that you have to hug a tree. If you want to do that, more power to you. But I know some of you, that kind of creeps you out. You don't have to hug a tree. But just walk. Feel the cool air. Listen to those songs of grace that are being sung by the songbirds or even the toads in your pond. Get outside. Get outside. And as you're there, ask God to open your eyes. Find a sacred place. Find a routine, a place you always walk, a tree stump that you always sit upon, a boulder that you always stand in front and look up with awe. But find you a sacred spot 
whether that's in your yard or somewhere off trails at Regional Park, go find your sacred space and there return yourself to solitude and silence. Prayer as expression is a wonderful gift, but prayer as silent listening is even more powerful than that. And it's hard at first. You'll feel uncomfortable at first. It's okay. You've got time to practice this skill. And if you practice it, I promise you, you will get better at it. Maybe even find yourself longing for it. Engage with the scripture as devotional literature. Don't read it as a rule book of obligation where you're trying to find out the next rule you're supposed to follow. I'm not saying you can't ever do this. I'm just saying put that practice aside for a little while. Don't read it so you can kind of prove some sort of faith point. But return to the scripture use as devotional literature. In other words, what I want to encourage you to do, and this isn't the only way of reading Scripture, but it is an important way of reading Scripture, look for the metaphor of the narrative. Knowledge is conferred through reading information, but wisdom is only conferred through recognizing metaphor. And this story of redemptions is chock full of powerful and beautiful metaphors. We just saw one this morning. He must increase. I must decrease. Yes, that meant something in the historical context, but if we take a moment, let the Spirit breathe on it, it might mean something to us on a deep personal level. So look for the metaphor of Scripture. Practice Lexio Divina. I won't go into that, but you can, you can Google that, or you can email me, and I will send you everything that I've saved on the practice of Lexio Divina. It just means divine reading. Practice truth speaking and prayer. In other, show up as you are, not how you hope to be. God loves you for who you are, not who you're supposed to be, because you'll probably never be who you're supposed to be. So if you keep trying to live into that reality, then you'll miss the direct experience of the love of God holding you in the mess of who you are. So show up as you are, not how you hope to be. And finally, honor and value your relationships. The most straightforward way to honor Jesus is to serve the tribe where God has placed you because that's how you minister to Jesus in the flesh. Shoot me an email.